Hello and welcome to another teaching from 119 Ministries. Our ministry believes that the whole Bible is still true and directly related to our lives today. If you would like to know more about what we believe and teach, please visit us at testeverything.net. We hope that you enjoy studying and testing the following teaching. Counter-missionaries claim that the New Testament writings are utterly contradictory and therefore unreliable. They cite several objections to the genealogies of Yeshua given in Matthew and Luke to make their case. It's argued that the genealogies contradict each other and that there are multiple other issues that disqualify Yeshua as the Messiah. How do we as believers in Yeshua the Messiah answer these objections? Before we dive in, if you haven't seen our teaching, Why Yeshua is the Messiah, we recommend watching that teaching first. In that teaching, we make a positive case for why Yeshua is the only possible candidate for Israel's Messiah, according to Scripture. Regarding the topic at hand, it's first worth pointing out that the writers of the Gospels really believed in what they are writing. Their goal was to prove to their readers that Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel. In his book, On Guard, professional philosopher and theologian Dr. William Lane Craig writes, No modern scholar thinks of the Gospels as bald-faced lies, the result of a massive conspiracy. The only places you will find such conspiracy theories are on atheist websites and in sensationalist books and movies. When you read the pages of the New Testament, there's no doubt that these people sincerely believed in the truth of what they proclaimed. Since the authors of the Gospels really believed what they wrote, and they were dedicated to proving the truth of their claims, it is simply unreasonable to suggest that they would have preserved and spread contradictory accounts of Yeshua's ancestry. We can reasonably assume that collectively they would not have made such an obvious mistake. If these genealogies were really as problematic as counter-missionaries have claimed, why would the authors of the Gospels, who truly believed in Yeshua's Messiahship with all their hearts, mess up such a crucial detail and never correct it. Furthermore, why would the early messianic community affirm these genealogies and pass on the gospels containing them in support of their beliefs if they contained contradictions? Semitic language scholar and messianic Jew Dr. Michael Brown echoes these criticisms of the counter-missionary argument. It is certainly ironic that the same people who often claim that the New Testament writers rewrote the story of Yeshua's life to create the allegedly false impression that the events of his life corresponded to biblical prophecy also claim that two of the principal authors, in fact, the primary historians of the New Testament, preserved two hopelessly contradictory and self-defeating genealogies. Matthew starting his book with his ancestral record and Luke giving a special place in his book to a lengthy genealogical record. Added to this is the supposition that the editors and copyists carefully preserved and passed on these contradictory accounts. And not one early church leader ever thought of changing this. Now this is special pleading. The simplest answer to these apparent inconsistencies is that the problem lies with us, not with Matthew and Luke. Perhaps we ought to approach these texts with a little more humility and clear thinking. Nonetheless, when we read these accounts, some reasonable questions arise. Matthew's account of Yeshua's genealogy is in chapter 1, at the very beginning of his gospel. 
Luke's account of Yeshua's genealogy appears in chapter 3 of his gospel, beginning in verse 23. Let's take a look at the two lists in order, beginning with King David, which is when we begin to see a divergence take place. Between these two genealogies, the first difference you'll notice is that Luke's list has almost twice as many names as Matthew's. In Matthew, the complete list of names beginning with Abraham is 41, whereas Luke's complete list contains 71 names beginning with Adam. Why is that? Well, in the Bible, authors sometimes would list every name in a genealogy, but other times they would skip over generations in order to have a shorter list highlighting the most important individuals. Dr. Walter Kaiser Jr., an Old Testament scholar, gives an example of this. The same high priestly line of Aaron appears in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 3 through 14, and Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. But it has 22 generations and names in Chronicles, while Ezra only has 16 names. When the two lists are placed side by side, it is clear that Ezra deliberately skipped from the eighth name to the 15th name, thereby abridging his list, but in a way that was legitimate within the traditions of Scripture. This is exactly what is illustrated in the lists in Matthew. Indeed, if counter-missionaries have a problem with the difference between the two genealogies concerning the total number of names, then in order to be consistent, they must apply the same criticism to the genealogies listed in the Tanakh. So there's not really an issue here unless counter-missionaries are prepared to throw out the Tanakh on the same basis. Another difference between these genealogies is that Matthew's list follows a line that passes from David to his son Solomon, while Luke's list passes from David to his other son, Nathan, hence the several different names in each list. But is this a contradiction? Not at all. Matthew is simply giving Yeshua's genealogy through his adopted father, Joseph, while Luke gives his genealogy through his mother, Mary. So this isn't really a problem. Some might object to the genealogy in Luke going through Nathan instead of Solomon. It is claimed that the Messiah must be a descendant of David through his son Solomon. Therefore, the genealogy in Luke is useless. But this objection is simply without basis. Nowhere in the Tanakh are there unconditional promises given to Solomon regarding the Messiah coming from his lineage. The Messiah was prophesied to be a son of David, not Solomon. Note that it was said that there were no unconditional promises given to Solomon. Counter-missionaries like to point to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13-17 through 17, about God establishing Solomon's kingdom forever. But when we look at 1 Chronicles 28, verse 7, we see that this promise was clearly conditional upon Solomon's faithfulness to God. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 I will establish his kingdom forever, if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules, as he is today. We all know this story. Solomon did not continue strong in keeping God's commandments. 1 Kings 11 And Yahweh was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what Yahweh commanded. Therefore Yahweh said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant 
and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Again, it's David's throne that remains established forever, not Solomon's. Therefore, there is no reason to dismiss the genealogy in Luke, since it clearly traces Yeshua's genealogy to David, which is the primary point. There is no biblical requirement to go through Solomon. Such a requirement is merely pulled out of thin air by counter-missionaries. Another objection to Luke's account is that Luke traces Yeshua's ancestry through his mother, Mary. It is claimed that tribal affiliation only goes through the father, not the mother. However, this claim is demonstrably false. First, the Torah says that if a father only has daughters and no sons, and he dies, the family inheritance is passed on through his daughters. Numbers chapter 27. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. It's true that this commandment does not address genealogy specifically, but the concept of passing on a family inheritance is certainly related in principle. Second, we have an example in the Tanakh of genealogy continuing through a woman. 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Now Shishan had no sons, only daughters, but Shishan had an Egyptian slave whose name was Jarha. So Shishan gave his daughter in marriage to Jarha his slave, and she bore him Atai. Atai fathered Nathan, and Nathan fathered Zabad. The list of names continues on for many more verses, but right here is conclusive proof that genealogy can continue through women. This genealogy passed through Shishan's daughter, who married an Egyptian slave, and then it passed through to the daughter's children. Still, counter-missionaries might object to Matthew's genealogy of Yeshua on the basis of Yeshua's descendant, Jeconiah, known in the Tanakh by the name Jehoachin. A passage in Jeremiah says that God cursed Jehoachin and his children. Jeremiah 22, As I live, declares Yahweh, through Coniah the son of Jehoachin, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you in the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. Thus says Yahweh, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Based on this passage, it is argued that Yeshua cannot be the Messiah because he comes from the curse line of Jehoiachin. First of all, when we look a little later in Jeremiah, we see evidence that Jehoiachin actually repented of his sin. Jeremiah chapter 52. And in the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Jehoiachin king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-fifth day of the month, evil Merodach king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin king of Judah and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death as long as he lived. On the basis of this passage and the complete reversal of Jehoiachin's circumstances from prison to the king's table, scholars and even Talmudic rabbis argue that Jehoiachin had repented. Furthermore, if we look into the book of Haggai, we find that God appears to have reversed this curse. After the exile, Zerubbabel, Jehoiachin's grandson, became the governor of Judah. Haggai chapter 2. The word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, 
Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. You'll notice the use of the term signet ring in both Jeremiah and Haggai. In Jeremiah, Yahweh told Jehoiachin that he was a signet ring on his hand, and yet Yahweh tore him off and gave him to the hand of the Babylonians. Then after the exile, Yahweh tells Jehoiachin's grandson, Zerubbabel, that he has made him to be like the Lord's signet ring. The use of this term is not a coincidence. In this passage, God is telling us that the curse on Jehoiachin has been reversed. Perhaps the biggest obstacle with the genealogies is that both Matthew and Luke list Shealtiel as the father of Zerubbabel. And yet Matthew states that Jeconiah is the father of Shealtiel, while Luke states that Neri is the father of Shealtiel. How do we deal with this apparent discrepancy? This issue is easily resolved when you consider that the Shealtiel and Zerubbabel of Matthew's list are not the same Shealtiel and Zerubbabel of Luke's list. It's easy to see why some people would assume that they are the same people, but there's really no reason to assume that. In his book, Jesus, Title to the Throne of David, theologian W.W. Barndollar writes, We must consider that Salathiel and Zerubbabel is one genealogy as different than the men by the same names in the other genealogy. It is not at all impossible nor unusual for blood relatives in the same generation to have the same names. It has been true in the past and it is true in our day. In the days of David, we read of two descendants from Levi who bore the same name, Elkanah. The one was a Korhite known as one of David's mighty men, helpers of the war, while the other was a Levite assigned as doorkeeper for the ark. Therefore, the identical names in Matthew's and Luke's genealogies present no great problem, for there is no good reason why they are not different individuals even though having the same name. As we can see, if the Shealtiel and Zerubbabel of Matthew's list is different than the men by the same name in Luke's list, then there is no contradiction at all. Problem solved. However, even if we assume that they are the same, this apparent contradiction is easily resolved once we consider the possibility that there may have been a levirate marriage. A levirate marriage occurs when a husband dies childless and therefore his brother or near relative marries his widow. The first son born from the levirate marriage would be the legal heir of the deceased husband. This practice is outlined in the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So in the case of Matthew and Luke's genealogies, it's possible that Shealtiel was born from a levirate marriage. He would be legally descended from Jeconiah via levirate marriage. But would be the biological descendant of Neri. Admittedly, this cannot be proven, but it's at least a possibility that would resolve the apparent contradiction between the two passages. Still, other possibilities exist if we assume Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are the same people in both genealogies. For instance, Shealtiel could be Neri's descendant by marriage and Jeconiah's descendant by blood. Again, this can't be proven, but it's a possibility. 
Each of these perspectives have reasonable arguments and support among scholars. However, one thing is clear. The apparent inconsistencies between the two genealogies are not insurmountable, but have several plausible resolutions. In conclusion, counter-missionaries overstate their case by appealing to the apparent discrepancies between the two genealogies of Yeshua given in Matthew and in Luke. The technical issues to work through in Matthew and Luke are not uncommon to what we also find in the Tanakh. Furthermore, whatever issues might exist have several plausible resolutions. Not only that, but it's far-fetched to assert that hopelessly contradictory accounts of Yeshua's ancestry would be proudly affirmed and passed on among the early messianic community and throughout church history. Therefore, this objection to Yeshua simply does not hold water. We pray that you have been blessed by this teaching. And remember, continue to test everything. Shalom. It is because of you, our generous supporters, who make it possible to offer these high-quality teachings completely free of charge. If you feel led to support 119 Ministries so that we can continue this effort, please visit testeverything.net and click on the Support 119 tab. Learn how you can partner with us to take the whole Word of God to the nations.